Welcome to the Happy Saver podcast. I'm Ruth, a blogger on personal finance here in New Zealand. And because New Zealand is a really small place, it's seriously more like a village. And the people I seek out are often uncomfortable having their story told in public. You will hear these stories from me and not directly from them so that they can retain their privacy. Plus, I do have a tendency to waffle, so by doing it this way, you get a better level of detail. And I just chat to people, I tease the information out of them, and I condense it down so that you can hear helpful, relatable stories from Kiwis who are giving their experience, their tips, and point of view on personal finance here in New Zealand. So with all that being said, on this week's episode, I will be sharing the money journey of Chris and his wife, Megan. Now, these are not their real names, but... All the Chris's and Megan's I personally know are really motivated people and as you will hear shortly, so are these two. When a former multi-sport athlete turns the same motivation, hard work and attention to detail that they use for their sport to their personal finances, great things can happen. Chris and his wife Megan were tired of it taking so long to pay off their mortgage so they focused on the detail and developed a game plan that will see them own their own house on the 31st of December 2020. Plus, a key decision to pay into their retirement schemes from the day they started working has really paid off because now, in their mid-30s, they have the strong foundations in place to provide a wonderful future for their family of five. There are a few other investment decisions that they are working through, plus there is the small matter of him convincing his wife that they need a boat. But before we hear their money journey, I just have a quick word from today's sponsor. I'm excited to have Hatch supporting today's episode because they make investing in the world's most recognisable companies and funds easy and affordable. Hatch is Kiwi Wealth's investing platform and as part of the Kiwi Group family, they are 100% Kiwi owned and are committed to helping Kiwis grow their wealth long term. Whether you're new to investing or an experienced Wolf of Wall Street, you can be a shareholder in the brands you know and love and back the companies you grew up with, like Microsoft and Apple. Or back a green future with groundbreaking brands like Tesla and Beyond Meat. The team behind Hatch is dedicated to helping Kiwis learn that they can get their money working harder. So if you're ready to take your first step, head to hatch.as forward slash the happy saver. Our paths first crossed when I ran a competition giving away a few phone-a-friend chats and Chris was one of the lucky winners. Now getting to talk to me for an hour is a questionable sort of prize I know but he hid his disappointment well. When I pick up the phone to do these calls it's a complete mystery as to where the conversation will lead and I always hang up the phone with a feeling of euphoria having just had a pretty intense conversation about one of society's most taboo topics, money. So Because I found his story so interesting on that call, I was delighted to pick up the phone for another chat, this time specifically for this podcast. Both in their mid-30s, Chris works full-time in a government role, and his wife Megan is self-employed in healthcare and has her own business. Now for privacy reasons, I can't tell you much more than that I'm afraid, but I can say that they are Christchurch based and they have three preschool children, all very close in age. So I spoke with Chris while Megan was hanging out with the kids. Like most of us, due to a lack of financial education growing up, he considers himself more self-taught than anything, and it was an interest in learning more about how to handle money that led him to seek out knowledge and develop his money smarts. Originally from further south, he reluctantly moved to Christchurch in his very early teens, and it took him a while to find his feet in quite a different city than what he was used to. 
He said he was not academically great, was more sort of steady as she goes, but he worked hard and stuck with school right to the end. In his final two years of school, he really started to get interested in the outdoor pursuits that were offered, like kayaking and navigation and bush-related stuff, and he really propelled himself into the outdoors. So much so that he turned 18 on day two of his first multi-sport event, the iconic Coast to Coast, where you run, kayak and cycle from the west coast to the east coast of the South Island. He loved it and went on to compete in the event year after year, and that tells you a little about the type of person he is right there. You don't just get up one morning and take part in something like this. There are months and years of discipline training that go into it, and he has since gone on to apply that same dogged determination and planning to his and Megan's money. This love of the outdoors took him to Teachers College, where he had ambitions to teach others to love sport and recreation just as much as he did. In his early 20s, while he was studying full-time, he was also training pretty intensely for his own sport each week, and, as luck would have it, so was his future wife Megan. She was an athlete herself and also studying for her medical-related career. Thankfully, he finished his study debt-free. He said some good forethought and the generosity of his parents, who had saved up some money for him, covered the majority of his uni fees, which were about $15,000 from memory. He also worked 20 to 30 hours per week while he was studying and doing his sport. Megan finished up her qualification with a student loan of around $30,000, which she paid off in full a number of years ago. For prospective students and their parents, listen up. It is entirely possible to come out of university debt-free in New Zealand. It just takes planning and saving up money in the years leading up to it and then working a job while you are there. It's a tough few years where you are either studying or working, but coming out debt-free gives you an immediate step up when you finish because you won't spend the next decade paying for something you have already done and you can allocate that income to other things. Although Chris finished his degree, ultimately he didn't take that teaching path, nor the path of pursuing his multi-sport full-time, something he seriously considered doing. In his early 20s, he started on the career path that he's still in today, working in a government position in Canterbury. Although he is no longer competing in coast-to-coast, his job keeps him active, plus as part of his career, there's a lot of ongoing training involved, which he enjoys. Megan also started into her career, the same one she is in today, but is now self-employed and running her own business, and pretty much as soon as they started to work, about 12 to 13 years ago, and after time spent flatting and living with their parents off and on to save up a deposit, they bought their first house in late 2008. It was very much a goal of theirs, and they are still in the same home today. This home, back in 08, cost them $325,000, and they put down a small deposit of just $25,000. Interest rates at that time were, wait for it, 9.7%, and their bank was the National Bank, a bank that is no longer around today. He said it was a scary thing at the time. It was a high interest rate, and $300,000 was considered a big mortgage for two young people starting out on a life together. Now that they have three small children, the house is finally starting to feel a little small, but Chris and Megan are trying to prolong a decision to move, or not, as long as they can. The house is on a large section and there is room to add on to it as an option instead of moving. Basically, he does not want to move or add on to the property and have to take on yet another mortgage as he would rather save and get a few goals ticked off than be endlessly paying down debt. 
and although tempting to upsize their house, they have both worked so hard to pay down their mortgage and get to this point, it would feel like a backwards move to just push repeat and go and do it all over again. They are now tantalizingly close to becoming debt-free, with their planned payoff date being the 31st of December 2020. What a way to farewell 2020. Goodness knows we all need something positive to look forward to, and I'll be thinking of them on that day for sure. Now, not everyone sees becoming mortgage-free as a worthwhile goal, so I asked him what he thought the benefits were to them having no mortgage debt. Having now been in their home for 12 years, it's now worth about $550,000 to $600,000, and he really likes the thought of owning it outright because he really sees the option of having some financial independence and resilience as it gives them the opportunity and the choice to work less, be home with the kids, save and retire a little earlier, if that is what they choose to do, rather than working till 65, paying off the house just as they reach retirement but having no other savings. To Chris, it seems illogical to work your whole life to own a house, yet have nothing else as he hears of others doing. He thinks owning a property is important, but more of a need than an asset. By becoming mortgage-free on their own home, it will just take the stress and risk away. He can take a sabbatical from work if ever he wanted to, and it just gives them options, choices, and a bit of freedom. Coming from Christchurch, they are perhaps more aware than some that life does crazy things to you sometimes, and if there was a big event like an earthquake or a pandemic, or one of them got sick and was unable to work, then they would have no stress of a mortgage to pay, and they could still live life. My personal view is that COVID-19 has a lot of people thinking in a similar way for the first time in their life, and it's probably worth pointing out to you that there will be other significant events sometime in the future. So it's best to understand that and start planning for it now instead of waiting until you are smack bang in the middle of the event. Right, now that we know a little bit about them both, let's get into some details. Between the two of them, with him working full-time and Megan part-time, they bring in about $160,000 to $180,000 a year before tax. It varies due to her self-employed income due to the young children she is working part-time, but when she does work, she does have a high hourly rate, and what he has going on in his workplace. Between the two of them, and with the help of grandparents plus some daycare, they juggle the kids and they manage to make it work. He has a workplace superannuation scheme to which he contributes 7.5% of his income, but he has no say how this is invested. Because of this work scheme, he started late on signing up to a KiwiSaver scheme, but he joined just in time to get the government kickstart of $1,000 before it was unfortunately scrapped, and although he was also initially contributing 3% from his wages to his KiwiSaver, he did dial it back a few years ago so that they could focus on hitting their mortgage hard instead, but he still makes sure he puts 1042 in there so he gets the government contribution of $541 each year. Just in case you are confused by this, There are still some employers who offer workplace schemes and you can also have a KiwiSaver scheme at the same time, but only one will receive the government contributions. You can't double dip. If he was to leave his employment, he will also be able to take his work superannuation money with him. He does not have to wait until the age of 65 as he does with KiwiSaver. It's his to manage, invest or use. A money floppy mentioned is that a few years ago he used to mess around with his KiwiSaver He thought he knew better and he changed his fund around quite a lot, but he is now just being patient and playing the long game and he has his KiwiSaver with Superlife and a high growth, lower fee fund, which he is happy with. 
and Megan is with ANZ in a balanced growth fund, which they are currently reviewing and considering changing away from. When they made the decision to become mortgage-free as fast as they could, Chris said that the banks didn't tell him how to get mortgage-free or even try to help him. Chris said he is a bit of a cynic and a sceptical person by nature, and because of that he has a healthy distrust of banks, believing that it's not in their best interest to help you get ahead. After all, they make a living out of you paying them interest, so it's up to you to do your own research. Based on that, quite a few years ago they signed up with New Zealand Home Loans and transferred to Kiwi Bank as their lender. Basically how it works is that you have one bank account which is negative to the amount of your mortgage. For example, negative $200,000. All of your income and expenses comes from this one account. You may also use a credit card in conjunction with it and you slowly work yourself back to zero. It is good for high income earners and those with irregular incomes, but it requires a great amount of discipline to use a facility like this because basically there is nothing except your willpower stopping you withdrawing to the maximum of your loan amount. Although Chris and Megan stayed with them for some time, unfortunately, he didn't find them to be much help either. The problem, he said, is that you deal with an individual franchise at New Zealand Home Loans, and if you don't gel with the person looking after you, then it can make things difficult, and Chris really felt like they were still not progressing as fast as he would like. So he kept paying down the mortgage, and he kept on looking for options, and it took a few years and some research but he actually ended up setting up his own debt repayment strategy that has worked for them and would get them to their goal sooner and that's the plan they have been on ever since to get them debt free by the 31st of December 2020. How it works is that they put the majority of their debt on interest only, making a set interest only payment to that throughout the following 12 months. Throughout that year, they would make no payment to the principal of this part of the loan. They then put a portion, about $40,000, on a floating rate and they went about paying this portion off over the following year. A floating mortgage allows them to make whatever size payments they like, so if they had a good month at work, they could pay more. After 12 months, they had paid off that full $40,000 and then they just did it all over again, locking in the majority as interest only and carving off another chunk to put on a floating rate. They did this time and time again. I asked him what the bank made of this, as it's actually a different setup to most, and he said that they looked at him sideways and asked where he had heard the structure from, but they did go ahead and let him do it this way. He said, and I noticed when I referred back to my notes, I had put this in all caps, they had to be disciplined. By setting up their mortgage in this way, they had to keep their eye on the prize to be debt-free as soon as possible. So it was a long-term goal, and that is a long period of time to stay focused. If they had strayed from this and not paid back their floating portion, which always carries about a 1% higher interest rate in New Zealand, while also paying interest only on the large chunk, then they would never have gained any ground. In 2020, they felt that even with the structure, they were still not getting to their goal quickly enough, and they felt they had to do something different, to find a better banking deal and negotiate a better rate with their bank. So this year, they used a broker from Auckland-based Squirrel Mortgages and renegotiated their mortgages with Kiwi Bank. I say mortgages because they do have a second property that I'll get to shortly. He said that using a broker made the process far easier and financially it was worth their while to make changes to it. Plus, they got about $3,000 out of Kiwi Bank as a lump sum. So come January 1st, 2021, barring any unforeseen surprises, they will be mortgage-free on their primary residence 
and they then have two key goals in mind and plans for the future too. Number one is building up an emergency fund of $20,000 as currently they only have a redraw facility on their mortgage, meaning that if they had an emergency, they have to use debt to solve the problem. This is exactly what happened when their car blew up and needed $11,000 worth of repairs. They drew down on their floating home loan to pay for it, which pushed out their mortgage-free date. Number two, he also wants to buy a jet boat worth about $40,000 and pay cash for it. Once he can convince Megan of the merits of this, of course. They will continue to invest in his work super scheme and into his and Megan's KiwiSaver. All up, these retirement accounts already total about $300,000 combined and they continue to keep building on this. As many do, he has been investing with Sharesies for a little while now, just as a way to educate and familiarise themselves with how share investing works and could work for them. Just doing it is a great lesson and if you start small when the time comes and you have more money to invest, they will have settled on a portfolio and a pattern of investing that works for them. So far he has invested about $3,000 which is spread across the following smart shares funds. They've got the US 500 ETF, the US Large Growth ETF, New Zealand Top 50 ETF and the S&P NZX 50 ETF. There are also very small investments into a few individual stocks, just 30 odd dollars into each, but it's a diverse mix of New Zealand top 50 companies that, in his words, he dabbles with. He's got A2 Milk, Fisher & Paykel, Genesis Energy, Auckland Airport and Trustpower. He felt he knew these companies, Uh, he knew they'd done well historically because he'd looked at their past returns, their fees and their dividends. He thought they would be sought after companies over the long term and always be in demand. However, during recent events with COVID-19, he found that the volatility of individual companies to be too much and it took, he said, ages to come right again. He observed that you do hear stories of a left-field investment someone made and a company doing really well and you might get lucky yourself, but you don't hear of these stories enough and this was certainly not his own experience. Instead, he found that COVID-19 proved that left-field things can happen and they can have a massive negative impact on the price of the share and it's a kick in the guts when you get it wrong. He finds investing in ETFs more balanced and far less turbulent because you don't see what each company within the fund is doing and he found it mentally more reassuring that their investments were going in the right direction. He reasoned that it's a mental game and that you are probably better off not knowing about the daily fluctuations. Using ETFs is starting to make a lot more sense to him, he said. And in a way, I'm pleased that he went through this recent market crash, having just a bit of skin in the game because he paid attention and he took notice of what was happening and also how he was feeling and that will guide his decision making going forward. This exercise has taught him a lot about his tolerance for risk. In regards to watching the KiwiSaver and superannuation balances, he said, by way of example, about staying the course when it comes to investing, after the March crash in shares, between them, they lost over $60,000 from their investments. They forgot about it as best they could and just let the market do its thing. When we spoke in late August, they have now regained all of that back. He said that he thinks it's an illustration to others not to panic when there's a crash. If you know you are in the right fund going into it, don't make any changes, just don't look for a while. They are now investing $25 a week for each of their three children. He has automated this process now and they are investing in a range of ETFs similar to his own. 
this simple set-and-forget investment will grow to form a sizable nest egg by the time they become young adults, and I really encourage people to think about this if they have the means to do so. A fund like this could pay for the education of each child, much like Chris's parents did for him. Next we came to another investment they had made, about five and a half to six years ago, and that was to use OPS Partners to buy a brand new home built by housing company Mike Rear Homes located in a new subdivision in Christchurch for the sole purpose of it being a rental property. His view of using OPS was not good as he felt like they were just making a sale and he felt pressured into it. He said he would have liked to negotiate more at the time of purchase to buy it for a slightly lesser price which would have immediately added value to the property by way of capital gains. He said they give you numbers that look like it's a good bet that sucks people in who don't really have a clue. Not exactly a ringing endorsement, but a warning worth sharing, I think. In about 2014, they used the equity in their own home as a deposit, so they leveraged off their own home, meaning that they didn't have to come up with any actual cash uh, to purchase this rental, for which they paid $460,000. It's a four-bedroom, two-bathroom, brand-new, low-maintenance home. They signed up to a five-year interest-only mortgage with an interest rate of 5.3%. They wanted stability in their payments and doing it this way gave them certainty, he said. From the get-go, they had to top up their mortgage payment by $130 a week on top of the $485 a week rent that their tenants were paying. When their five-year term ended, they refixed their interest rate at a much lower 2.65%, so they are no longer having to top up their rent, which has dropped by $10 down to $475 a week but they remain on an interest-only mortgage. And I think it's important to note too that rents don't always go up. The assumption when you take on an interest-only mortgage is that the value of the property will rise so that when you sell it, you get to keep that difference. But not in this case because after six years of owning the property, having paid out $130 a week for five years or $33,800 and having had every single rent payment go straight to the bank as an interest payment, their house has actually only gone up in value $10,000, maybe $20,000. He said the market is slow and flat in Christchurch due to there being supply and demand changes since the rebuild after the earthquakes. On top of this is the fact they also had a few brief periods of vacancy, which caused them stress, and that they also pay 7% of their rent to a property management company to look after the place. Plus he said that with the changes to the tax codes around the rental property, He said it's becoming increasingly harder and less attractive to have a rental because he can no longer offset some tax. They pay an accountant to do their tax return. They also pay rates, insurance, and of course money for upkeep. So in his words, having a rental property is not all bells and whistles. In my own words, I would say it's more loud warning sirens actually. They went interest only so they could pocket the capital gains, but it has not worked. But the thing about an interest-only mortgage is that if they sold that property today, maybe they do get 480000 for it, 20000 more than they paid six years ago. Well, that increase would likely go to the real estate agent in fees, leaving them with nothing, no equity gain, because they've not paid back one single dollar of the money they borrowed. All payments have gone to their bank as interest, so they would come out with no money at all. In effect, for six years, they have been the tenant that carefully tended the property for their bank, so no wonder they have scepticism towards the banking industry, right? And no wonder the bank never buys the house, but instead lends you and I the money to buy the house. But they find themselves in a conundrum now. They are so deep into it that to sell now and receive no money is something he doesn't want to do, 
Because what if they sold it and the stagnant property market finally started to move up? That would be a kick in the guts, right? He just feels he has to switch off and let it run. He thinks that now they are not topping up their mortgage payment at all on this rental. In theory, he could now start paying down the mortgage or using a sliver of the rent money to pay down the small remaining mortgage on their own home. This option is looking more attractive and he said at least it is not costing them now. And he thinks that if interest rates are going to stay low, he could hold for another two to three years and the house might finally start to go up in value. But they really need it to go up in value forty to $50,000 to even make it slightly worth their while. There are a whole lot of ifs, buts, mights and maybes in this situation. So they have been interest only the whole time they've had this rental mortgage and I hate to think how much they've paid to the bank. But it would be an exercise worth doing to put this whole investment into context. They went interest only so they could get the capital gains, but it has clearly not worked out. Now, when I write up these podcasts, I try not to inject my own point of view into them, which is hard for me because I'm quite opinionated. But I have to say that everything he's told me about this property really pretty much plays into all the reasons I personally stay away from the property market as an investment. I just could not be bothered with the mathematical gymnastics involved in this investment. The regret he said was at the time they were looking to buy, buying rental property in the Wanaka region was also an option to them and hindsight tells them they wish they'd done that instead, but hindsight is always twenty twenty, though, right? So let's change the topic slightly to something more positive, like how he is going to convince his wife to buy this jet boat he wants once they are mortgage free. I always ask people, how is your relationship with your partner when it comes to money? Well, the fact that they are having a conversation about his dream boat is a positive sign that they are on the same page. But although she is okay with having the discussion, she is less okay with the price tag, which might be in the region of $40,000. Megan may be the anchor to his boat because from what I was hearing during my conversation with Chris, he is more interested in the money side of things. And that is often the case that one person does tend to take on that responsibility of managing the money, but that decisions are jointly made. And if that decision does not feel appropriate to her, then her point of view counts just as much as his. So while Megan is 100% on board with becoming mortgage-free and saving up a $20,000 emergency fund, he has currently only convinced her in principle that a boat is a worthwhile idea for the family. The sticking point is the large price tag. He sees it as a reward for their hard work over the years. It's for the family to use and enjoy. And if it doesn't work out, then they can sell it which may well be for less because it is a depreciating asset. He said that it's all very well and good being frugal, but there is a balance to strike between enjoying today and planning for a tomorrow that you may or may not get to see. So clearly together they have a lot of talking to do yet, but I commend them for committing to making a team decision. And speaking of retirement and planning for tomorrow, I asked him when he thought he would retire. He said that with three toddlers in the house, retirement won't be anytime soon. Uh, In the next five to ten years, they will knuckle down and work hard because they are both enjoying their respective careers while they also invest for their future. And he is committed to working longer, but not until 65. So he may dial it back in his mid-50s and work a bit less then. I asked him what was one piece of advice, either good or bad, that his parents taught him about money. He said they always used to say that money does not grow on trees. And if you wanted something, then you had to work for it. Nothing gets handed to you. You have to earn it. So he worked from the age of about 12 in a market garden and he learned that if he wanted something, he had to earn the money to buy it. 
He thought it was a good lesson to learn to work hard from an early age, and although it didn't pay much, the satisfaction he got out of it was really good. And apart from Megan, I asked him if he had someone in his life who he can openly talk about money with now. His brother-in-law is a businessman uh, and good with money, so he approaches him from time to time, and Chris is also happy to talk to people at work, and now they come to him a bit as well. He said he has put some ideas into their head about investing and good money management. And how about if I were to give him $10,000 right now, what would he do with it? He said that with the mortgage on their house almost at an end, that he would put it straight into their emergency fund. They also each have a range of insurance in place. Both have life insurance, trauma and disability insurance and medical insurance. And Megan also has income protection. Plus they have insurance on their cars, their home and their contents and what have you. Plus they also have up-to-date wills in place, something that's super important. So what does he consider to be their biggest financial triumph? Having good equity in the home they live in, it's now worth about five fifty to 600000 and having now been in it for 12 years, it's increased in value about $19,000 to $23,000 for every year that they've been in it. Combine that with the money they've invested during their working careers, they are not far off being net worth millionaires in their mid-30s. That is a stunning achievement and will be a good milestone to tick off. So what is his greatest financial flop? In some ways he said the rental property is the greatest flop because of the money they've put in year after year, but he says it's a paper loss and potentially if the market goes up in a few years, then it might return them something. So what about the day-to-day stuff, I hear you ask? Well, they don't budget per se, uh, and he said his system probably has room for improvement, but overall they're pretty happy with it. Basically, he runs a type of zero-based budget. Everything is allocated to a category of spending, and there is not much left at the end of the month, which kind of sounds like a budget to me. Um, He also tracks his net worth because by setting goals and knowing your destination and what you are trying to achieve, you will get there faster. And by using their combined incomes, they can achieve great things. Hearing him talk like this, I can see the influence of all those years training for multi-sport events being used for their own financial futures. With three little ones and nappies and two dogs to feed, they spend about $250 to $300 a week at the supermarket. And he said that good coffee and good food is really important to them both. Something that came up during our conversation is that he hates credit cards. People think he's weird, he said. Um, But the main reason being that he thinks that people get caught up in the rewards and the points that they offer, but he finds that people overspend. There is a lot of research out there that people who use a credit card spend more because it's easier to do for a start. Plus, getting cash out makes you stop and think about each purchase. And also, when you use a credit card, there is a time lag between swiping it and actually seeing the bill, which makes the cost seem less important. When you use a debit card instead, you can immediately feel the impact of your purchase. Chris said that the problems really come when well-meaning people don't pay them off and they start to get into trouble. And even in these low interest rate times, a credit card will hit you with a phenomenal interest rate payment of 20%. How do they justify that? Chris would much rather just use his own money. It's far easier to manage it that way and he doesn't pay any annual card fees for the privilege of using his own money either. They are a two-car family, with one car being 19 years old, with a whopping 470,000 Ks on the clock. He said it's worth nothing, and it has not missed a beat. However, their other newer vehicle that they bought for $36,000 has just had $11,000 of repairs done on it. 
It was this repair that set them back in their mortgage payoff date because they had to draw back down on their floating mortgage to pay for those repairs. So I asked them the question, if you could retain all of the knowledge that you have today regarding money and you could go back to your 15-year-old self and start again, what would you do, whether it be the same or something different? He said he would put money aside, irrespective of your goals. He put 7.5% of his wages aside from the day he started work in his current career, and he has never missed it, and that money has grown a huge amount. He would always pay himself first and invest well as it gives you options down the track. Just do it, he said. You will not miss the money. And he has a few book and podcast and blog suggestions for you and I. It's only been the last few years that he's really started to get serious and to seek out information to educate himself, and he suggests the following. The Total Money Makeover by Dave Ramsey because he likes his simple concept of the seven baby steps and he likes tangible goals, so Dave's message connected with Chris. There's J.L. Collins, The Simple Path to Wealth, that has a good lesson on how to be an investor. For the record, that I think is my absolute favourite book on investing. Playing with Fire by Scott Rikens is a good read about a couple who are just a bit younger than Chris's. Rich Dad Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki is worth a mention because even though he didn't like it as much, it does have one or two good principles in it. Of course, The Barefoot Investor by Australian Scott Pape is really good and worth a read. Everyday Millionaires by Chris Hogan is a good book because it did a lot of research to distill down the keys to financial success and you don't have to have a huge income to achieve it either. The Millionaire Next Door, The Surprising Secrets of America's Wealthy by Thomas Stanley and William Danko. It was the precursor to everyday millionaires, really, detailing the behaviours and characteristics of successful people. Basically, they just chipped away at it, and their biggest asset was their income. He likes reading Mary Holm's articles, which you can find at maryholm.com. You'll find links to all of these on the tools and resources page of my website, thehappysaver.com. Now, before I wrap up, I have another quick message from today's sponsor. Thanks again to Hatch for supporting today's episode. Whether you're new to investing or an experienced Wolf of Wall Street, you can be a shareholder in the brands you know and love. So if you're ready to take your first step, head to hatch.as forward slash the happy saver. First up, a huge thanks to Chris for speaking with me and thanks to, to Megan for letting him speak on her behalf. I think that their journey with money so far is an example of what happens if you start a few key behaviours early in life, starting with learning that hard work will take you far. And I think that Chris's personality type is well suited to making good financial decisions. The fact that both of them come from a sporting background that started in their teenage years means that they learn to be self-reliant and put in the hard yards themselves. No one else can compete for you in a high-level multi-sport event like the Coast to Coast. You have to have the motivation to do it yourself. And it's the same with handling money. If you want to be successful, you have to motivate yourself and map your own course. Getting straight into good careers that they both enjoy early has made a big difference with the key being that from day one, they set a portion of their income aside and have never stopped. Plus, they have so far resisted the urge to upsize their house and they remain in the first home they bought and have made it a goal to own it one that they will reach at the end of this year, which is absolutely awesome. That rental property of theirs is a questionable investment. It's just there in the background, and time will tell what becomes of it. But in the meantime, to find the positive, it is providing a warm and wonderful home for their tenants, I'm sure. While that is making them no money, they have been reaping the rewards of the share market, that often overlooked investment as people flock to property. 
which is where their retirement savings are invested. So it's great to see a diversified portfolio, which will only grow over time. And I guess the biggest unanswered question is the jet boat, right? Will he get it or won't he? So these two are definitely a couple I will be checking in on over the next couple of years to see how that pans out. And Chris, you might need to brush up on your sales skills to get that one over the line. So best of luck. So that's all from me this week. I'll be back next week with another money journey of another Kiwi. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please hit subscribe and it will automatically update in your podcast app each time I release a new episode. If you want to get in touch, you can find me at thehappysaver.com. And if you feel the urge, leave a review and share this podcast with your friends. Those are the best ways that people can learn about my podcast. And I would love it if you would talk more about money with your own friends and whanau and help me continue to help others be better with money. So until next time, happy saving.